Before I get into today's message, I thought it would be helpful for those of you that didn't see, haven't looked at Basecamp, I thought it would be helpful if I discussed last week's message for a moment. Now, I want to read something my brother sent to you, but I'm not reading this to you in any kind of way of, uh, of deferral or excuse making, but I thought it was helpful. Maybe you'll think so as well. My brother sent this to me actually last week, and he said, it was, a, it was a tweet that somebody had sent out, and it said, four weeks ago, church member one, church member number one, pastor, why are you reopening the churches so soon? Church member number two, pastor, why in the world did you ever shut down church services in the first place? Three weeks ago, church member one, pastor, you don't seem to care about the struggles of minorities. Church member two, Pastor, why haven't you been more supportive of the police? Two weeks ago, church member one, require masks. Clearly you don't care about human lives. Church member two, require masks. Pastor, clearly you don't care about human liberty. Last Sunday, church member one, boy, that was a really weird sermon. Seemed a little off. Church member two, yeah, what got into the pastor? I just need your grace. That's all I can really say. I just need your grace. I'm, I'm a human. I, I have my idols and sins of my own. And also just, just the, uh, I mean, even not, 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 even, not even that, just weaknesses. And so, uh, man, I received such a polarizing uh, response to the message. Some of, I received a text immediately after the message that was like, that message was so full of grace and mercy. <laughs> and then I got a bunch of different responses on the other side as well. And as I've, so, so it wasn't as if there was some clear kind of uniform understanding of exactly what went wrong to the extent that some of you thought it did. I would just say, please just give me grace. Um, if this, if, if, if that level of, if you found it confusing, if you found it critical, if this continues, um, then please, you know, speak speak to me or to deacons or elders, but but also maybe we could just um, call that a mulligan <laughs> and uh, and move forward. I, I I deeply in my heart, I, I hope that maybe one of the things that was communicated, if not effectively, was just it is really hard, really hard to see potential disunity in a local church. It's just a really hard. Um, it feels like you're watching a train wreck in slow motion. And maybe I reacted well to that. Maybe I, I, I think I, well, I don't think I reacted well to that. I don't think that at all. I, I didn't react well to it. And, uh, you know, I just, I just need your grace. So um, if you'll open your Bibles to Luke 7, verse 36. And I said more about that if, if you'd like to look at Basecamp um, I said more about it there. It would appreciate you if you have any additional questions or concerns, maybe taking a look at that as well. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of, flask of ointment 
and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Of this passage, Jonathan Edwards writes in his private journal, This woman seems to have been before a common whore. And that precious box of ointment was what she kept to anoint herself with, to render herself agreeable to her gallants, her customers, and particularly used to anoint her hair with, which was accounted the special ointment of women that she now makes use of as a towel to wipe Christ's feet. And having now that, she is brought to repentance. No further use for this costly box in that way, nor the precious ointment that is in it. She breaks the box and pours the ointment on Christ. That is very powerful. The perfume... The hair, these were tools of her sinning. And she didn't need to use them that way any longer. Didn't need to apply artificial, exterior improving scent to please her customers. She, she didn't need to see her hair as her glory. She didn't need to to be something that was profoundly sinful and destructive both to herself and to others. And she literally takes the tools of her trade and sees them transformed into objects of worship. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. The irony of the Pharisee's perspective is quite rich. Even if this woman had not found where Jesus was, even if this woman had not entered the story at all, Jesus would have been still having dinner with a sinner. If it was only him, Jesus, and the Pharisee, Jesus would have been doing what the Pharisee is accusing Jesus of doing in his heart. The only thing that really changed with the entry of this woman into this house and into this meal was that there was one sinner who was grateful in the presence of Jesus. And if the Pharisee saw himself as clearly as she did, they'd be having church. Because that's what church is. And that's all church can ever be. The gathering of people who are astonished by the mercy of Jesus. And to the extent that a church is no longer astonished at the mercy of Jesus, or the extent that individual members are no longer astonished to the members of Jesus, the church is indeed not as much, not as churchy as it could be or should be. And so this Pharisee, man, if he had just seen, oh, I am this woman. This 
this spectacle, this, this uncomfortable moment would have been transformed into a worship service. But Simon the Pharisee is missing it. He's hiding his sin more successfully than this woman. She is known by many to be a sinner, and he is not. And this is an exceedingly dangerous place to be. The Pharisee is in an exceedingly dangerous place. And it's only because Jesus knows this and cares for him that he stands any chance of being redeemed. And I read this story, and I'm reading my, my, all my wishes into this story, but I, read, I think Simon got converted. But that's, there's, there's no evidence of that. That's just my wishful thinking. I really think that's, like, how could you listen to what Jesus says and not? Anyway, there's a certain kind of person. This is what we're going to talk about today, this secretly critical spirit. There's a certain kind of person who camouflages themselves in artificial humility and meekness while violence rages in their hearts. Outwardly, they show a smile, but inside their courtroom of their heart is busy. Their docket is full. They reign as both prosecutor, judge, and jury. And though the external exterior is soft, the interior judgments are anything but soft. They often make hasty pronouncements upon others based on limited evidence. And once a ruling has been received or issued, they rarely reverse themselves. And because of all this, because all this is going on internally, this kind of person tends to be in this exceedingly dangerous space in which their heart really never gets noticed by the Christians around them who could help. And as the roots of this sin capture this heart, the individual becomes more resistant to the surgical intervention of God's word. And this resistance occurs in at least two ways. Number one, the secrecy of the critical spirit limits outside care. The secret nature of the critical spirit limits outside care. The secrecy of this sin keeps other Christians from noticing it. And this can be compounded, whether intentionally or unintentionally, by this individual projecting outward softness. Though it isn't clear to me that any of this happens intentionally, the sinner who is outwardly fragile but inwardly hard tends to elicit far more encouragement from the saints than admonishment. And perhaps this is a practiced effort, or perhaps it isn't. But one of the reasons why this sin is so dangerous is that it, by its secret nature, it tends to go unnoticed. And every Christian needs, every Christian needs encouragement and admonishment. But the secret, the secretly critical tends to fly under the radar of admonishment. Number two, the second reason why this is, this is a really dangerous and difficult thing. The critical spirit limits the effectiveness of the care that does come to them. So at first, I'm saying the, the secret nature of this critical spirit keeps people from speaking into their lives. They're simply not as sinful in a displaying kind of way than others. 
And the second thing I'm saying is, is that the critical spirit itself limits that help which does come. Because this sin involves a habituated judgment toward others, those struggling with it often accidentally insulate their hearts from God's word. And here's how. At a certain point in the progression of this sin, these individuals become adept at finding flaws in the messenger. And once identified, they feel justified in ignoring the message. It's rough. What is to be done? To be honest with you, in an advanced enough state, very little can be done. Very little of external means can be done. There is a bit of insulation in this particular sin that keeps real help from coming. Real help that would come in traditional ways. Real help from coming to these individuals. So the word of God must break through. And the sufferer must recognize, honestly, I think most of the time, on his or her own, with Jesus directly, that he or she struggles with a secretly critical spirit. At least six times in the gospel story, we find Jesus reading the minds of secret critics. And if we think about these larger realities compiled or available to us within these six stories, we should feel great gravity over this sin, but also great gladness. And I want to walk you through kind of the inferences and implications of this idea that Jesus knows. There, there, are, there are things to be grateful for because Jesus knows your secretly critical heart. Jesus knows my secretly critical heart. And there's things to be grateful for about that. But there are also things to be grave about because of that. So let me, let me walk you through three reasons why this person, if, if this feels like a possibility to you, let me give you three reasons why this is, this is really grave. The three reasons why you should feel a, a pretty strong sense of gravity and sobriety over the, even the possibility that this could be you. Firstly, secretly judgmental thoughts toward Christians um, are secretly judgmental thoughts toward Christ. To be critical of a Christian is to be critical of Christ. Our brothers are nothing less than the branches of the vine of Christ. There is little difference, little difference as you study these six passages between criticizing Jesus' miracle and criticizing Jesus. So there's a moment in, in the Gospels where Jesus heals a man with a lame hand and those that are on looking are secretly critical of this action. This is kind of the typical pattern you see in these passages. And what seems clear when you really think about it is, is there's no way to be secretly critical of a Christian without calling into question and doubting the goodness of the one who saved them. Because it's his work that you are criticizing. Number two. Over time, this quiet, critical spirit tries, starts to change the meaning of righteousness. And the meaning of righteousness becomes mostly behavioral and not heart-based. 
And this is an exceedingly dangerous place to go because eventually what will happen is that your behavioralism will become your boasting. And you will not have great joy in the gospel if what is accounted for in the gospel is merely just not doing bad things. Which seems to be the bottom line standard for the secretly critical. Number three, believers must understand that when they carry bitterness or resentment or judgment toward a fellow believer, they are taking up the agenda of the great accuser. Some of you have wondered before how the devil could be so uh, prolific and, and masterful across the whole world without possessing omnipotence or omniscience. I'll give you the simple answer. He is the best delegator that has ever existed. He knows how to get other people to do his work for him. And if you have a secretly critical spirit, it is, it is a grave thought indeed, but true, I believe, to say, if I am functioning as an accuser against my brethren in my heart, I have allowed the devil to delegate that work to me. This is rough stuff. This is just, in summary, an exhausting way to live. And it's exhausting because over time, you're slowly moving yourself out of the kingdom of grace and mercy and back into the kingdom of works. And this is exhausting. It will steal your peace and your joy in the gospel and your love for the church and your capacity to hear corrective words and so on and so forth. It, it, it really is an exhausting way to live. And it often manifests in, you, you know you don't have peace, but you don't know why. Jesus said that when you use a standard of judgment to judge others, that standard will be used against you. And we tend to think of that as some kind of an eschatological idea that one day Jesus will use the standard you use to judge yourself. But I, I think that's pos- there's something to that. But over the years and hours and hours of biblical counseling, what I've found is, is that, that a person who has unknowingly taken back up the yoke of works through their judgmental, critical spirit, they inevitably start thinking that way about themselves. And their own identity becomes about performance. And their own identity becomes about accomplishment. And it's this terrible cycle because that person becomes less stable and more likely to feel provoked. And this just creates this terrible cycle of inner criticism and outer criticism and inner criticism and outer criticism. And it just, it's just a terrible way to live. It really, in many ways, removes your capacity to live in hope. And it certainly, in many ways, removes your capacity to, love, to live in love. And what will happen inevitably in this process is you move from not only judging others and yourself, but you begin to judge your circumstances in dark light. And you are just ungrateful and fearful. And everything takes its most potentially disastrous turn. And I say all this with confidence because I've been here. It is, it is one thing to be outwardly dumb, like I was last week. 
And you kind of get called on that immediately. But you, my friends, please hear me. Hear me well. You can be inwardly violent for decades. And no one will speak into that. Why, by the way? Because we're not, as believers, really probing one another's hearts to help them know God. Most of the time, we only deal with sin when it hurts us. So you can go a long time, maybe even unaware, that you have taken the position of Simon the Pharisee. So yeah, you should feel a lot of weight. But man, you should feel a lot of hope. This passage should make you feel a lot of hope. Gravity to be sure, but gladness for at least four reasons. Number one, Jesus knows your heart. Jesus knowing your inmost thoughts is never a bad thing when Jesus has shed his blood for your soul. Jesus knowing your thoughts is always, honestly, it's often the only thing that keeps you in the game. Because we do have such a capacity to deceive and self-deceive. But he sees. Look back at verse 39. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus is, 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 is hearing that internal thought. Don't ask me how that works. Jesus knows what this Pharisee is thinking to himself. And the irony is, is that Jesus proves he is a prophet by reading the Pharisees' thoughts. So while our sin may be hidden from ourselves or others, Jesus knows, here I'm paraphrasing from Psalm 139, Jesus knows when we sit and when we rise and understands our thoughts from afar. And He is faithful to answer our prayers, to search us and know us and discern any evil within us. And I just want to take a moment and suggest that, that you know, why, Lord, why don't, this is something my wife and I have seen in our, in our walks with Lord for years. Lord, why don't I feel joy in my salvation? Well, I don't feel joy in my salvation because I'm not blessed. I don't feel blessed. Why don't I feel blessed? Because the Bible says that the one who is blessed is the one whose sin has been forgiven and whose transgression has been covered. And I am not feeling the joy of the gospel because I am not fully aware of my sin And why am I not fully aware of my sin? Please listen super carefully. Ignore your kids for one second. Why am I not fully aware of my sin? You have not because you ask not. That's the answer. You want to be grateful for the gospel? Pray Psalm 139. Search me and know me, O Lord, and show any unclean way within me. And then suddenly, what you have to deal with becomes much sharper and bigger than what you think others have to deal with. So the good news, number one, is Jesus knows your heart. You can't hide it. You can't even, this is the best part, you can't even accidentally hide it. Because I'm not convinced that most of our hiding is intentional in an entirely conscious way. But the good news is it doesn't matter whether you mean to or you don't, you can't hide. Number two, Jesus won't allow these things to go unaddressed forever. If you are his... He won't let it go. 
This is that other beautiful thing. It's almost inevitable that even our family members fail to come to us just proactively asking how we are and how it is with our soul. It's almost inevitable that that happens. And it's almost inevitable that most of the time we deal with one another's sin is when it has hurt us. These things are, are not right, but they're almost inevitable. But it's so cool because Jesus actually just loves us. And everything we do offends him. Maybe that's a better way to say it. <laughs> so he is constantly engaged. He's got skin in the game all the way through. All of our sin is a sin against him. But the beautiful thing is that he just won't let it go on forever. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. There you go. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. We can be sure that Jesus won't allow our secret sin to go unaddressed. And here we see it happening in real time. That might be the way Jesus deals with it for you. He might say to you today or sometime soon, Lord willing, I have something to say to you. I want to I recenter the glory of the gospel for you. I want to help you retrace where your joy went and where your hope went and where your love went. The third reason why you should feel gladness over this whole deal is Jesus is not an easy messenger to shoot. As I said earlier, one of the things that insulates a critical spirit from receiving correction is that it is really easy for the critical spirit to pick out the flaws of the messenger and shoot the messenger and thus prevent the word of God from reaching their heart. But the beautiful thing is, is that what are you going to shoot down with Jesus? First of all, if you shot him, he'd just come back. But secondly, I want to be careful here because I, here's what I have to say. He has no flaws to nitpick. His tone is always perfect. His words are always precise. And each one of his words is filled with grace and truth. That's what I want you to know. But I also want you to know this. It is possible for you to fall so far away that you don't think Jesus' tone is perfect. And you don't think his words are full of truth and grace. It's possible to get there. So that when Jesus makes confident assertions about the realities of the spiritual world, about the realities of sexuality, about a lot of other things, it's possible for you to get even to the point where you shoot that messenger. And this is, of course, dangerous. But he will keep coming back to those whom he's called. Number four. And this, we're, gonna, we're not far from being done. Number four. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus transforms secretly critical spirits with undeserved mercy. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he has canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Uh, Just real quickly, look at verse 44. Jesus asks Simon, do you see this woman? Here's the truth. He didn't. He saw who the woman was. He didn't see who the woman is. And there is your very boiled down, hyper-concentrated understanding of what a critical spirit is. I see what you were. I don't see who you are in Christ. I see what is not under subjection. I don't see that it's all legally under subjection. And of course, Simon didn't not only not see this woman, he didn't see Jesus. He was wondering whether Jesus was a prophet. But Jesus is so much more than a prophet. And this woman's repentance, the tears of her repentance demonstrate this very fact. Our questions about the nature of Jesus are always too small, too weak, too tepid. Don't be surprised if he blows him wide open and says, and, and, and only partially answers your question and then gives you a massive bigger question to ask. Because at the end of this, they're not asking, are you a prophet? They're asking, who is this man that has the authority to forgive sins? So what I want you to mostly see is that this is an incredibly gracious response from Jesus. The way he handles with this, this with Simon is precisely the opposite of what Simon deserves. Here's what Simon deserves. You doubt I'm a prophet? You're judging this woman who is known for her sins? Well, Simon, right now in this busy living room, dining room, right now, Let me prove to you that I'm a prophet by listing all of your secret sins in front of everyone. That's what he deserved. He deserved his whole case with every bit of evidence brought out into the public through the power of divine omniscience. That's not what he received. We often forget and this was a delight to me this week to realize, we often forget that secrecy and hiding have righteous uses. And that God is frequently employing secrecy and hiding for our good. Here's here's how I would suggest you think about that. The process of repentance and sanctification is a lot like giving birth. It is a good thing, but it is a hard and potentially profoundly humiliating thing. I'm triggering my wife just talking about it. Because we are foul sinners who exploit the secret places to cover our sin, and that's what a secretly critical spirit does, we exploit the, quiet, the covered places to continue sinning. Because we do that, Jesus has every right to make us lay down in a crowded room and deliver the baby of repentance in full view of everybody. Like, that would be reasonable. 
He could say to me, Chris, you're a secretly critical person. And so as a consequence, in order for you to overcome this sin, in order for me to expunge it from you, I want you to give a very public and humiliating birth to this repentance. I want, to, I, want you to, I, want, I want you to be humiliated as you have so often humiliated others in your heart. When it comes to our sin, it would be totally righteous of Jesus to cause us to endure that sort of thing. You know, a lot of us have seen babies born and some of us have had babies born out of us and women will never let us forget that those are two very different categories. But we all know, I mean, if you've seen it, if you've done it, you know. You are trusting other people to keep your dignity in as, tact, uh, uh, as, as intact as possible. Not that it's entirely possible. You're trusting others to guard you while you endure this exceedingly difficult, potentially humiliating process. And here's where I find the critical spirit may be most helped because so often the critical spirit fails to acknowledge this person. Jesus is with this person right now in the delivery room and and their fullest repentance and their fullest pain and their their most gushing tears and their most obvious weakness. That's being hidden from me because Jesus is kind. And he's doing the same for me. We often criticize a lack of progress in another. Maybe what we're criticizing is the fact that Jesus refuses to publicly humiliate people like we would if we were him. He uses the secret for our good. He uses the hiding for our good. We use it to establish our own judgments of criticism and sin. He uses it for our good and our care. Almost all the time, the little humiliation we feel in public or in out in the open is the minimum effective dose to get us to lie down so that we could be wheeled into the birthing room. Humiliation is a tool of God's discipline. It is. But he applies it in as minimum a dosage possible only to produce the humility that will bring lasting fruit of righteousness. What an incredibly kind God. God uses secrecy, hiddenness to bless us even when we use hiddenness and secrecy to curse him. The gospel is really something. (laughs) There's just no way for me to say that. That's not underselling it, of course. The gospel is really something. We read this story. Think about this. Like, like go meta with me for a minute. We read this story in a way that no one in the story would have experienced it. I'm excluding Jesus. And here's what I mean. From this side of the cross, who is the dirty one in this picture? And it's just obvious to all of us. 
Think about that. Think of how the assumptions have been delivered to you through the gospel so that when you read this story, it is not even about the prostitute. She comes off as beautiful, right? She comes off as the hero of the story. Friends, that would not have been the reality of her life. The Pharisee, he comes off to us as hideous, as disgusting, as deeply wrong. Friends, this is not how we would have seen it in that time. And this is both an encouragement and an admonishment, or it's an exhortation. The time is coming when the secretly critical will appear. It will be manifest. Jesus takes great care to get you to get this sin purged from your soul well before the judgment. (laughs) He's taking great care to address this particular issue. But eventually the script does flip and those who were outwardly gross in their sin but have repented in Christ, wind up looking far cleaner and righteous, more righteous than those who walk in this secretly critical spirit. Think about it this way. Both the Pharisee and the prostitute have a lot in common. They both use their God-given gifts in profoundly sinful ways. And they did that both as active rebellious sinners but also as just participants in a really hard world marred by sin. There is, there's, there's a way to understand the sin of both of these that is both high rebellion and also just what people do when they don't have Christ. This woman used her body to scratch her way through this world. This Pharisee used his mind. Both were defense tactics if you will not only defense tactics but they were if you will i'm going to use this thing to make my way through this hard world my my mind or my body to make my way through this hard world and that appears to them at one point in their lives to be the only option there's a there's a bit of defensiveness in the critical spirit it's as if they're standing at the parapet of a castle and they're trying to fight off the horde, and the horde is real, and they really are in danger. And they think the only way to do this is to sort of sit on that throne of judgment and like a sniper take out anything that, would, that could come at them. The woman is doing great violence to her body and to the bodies of others. And the Pharisee is doing great violence to his mind. And to the minds of others. Why? Because they're using them as weapons. And sometimes those weapons are defensive and sometimes they're offensive. But they're not made to be weapons at all, really. The woman used perfume to cover her true state. The Pharisee used secretism to cover his. Secretism to cover his. It's the same deal. It's masking something that's not great on the inside. Both had the effect of consuming those around them and in a really profound way. Both of these people were accomplices in the devil's task of tearing down their fellow men. 
But Jesus saves. Verse 48, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And for the first time for this woman, and I hope for Simon too, they don't have to defend themselves or fight anymore. They don't have to deploy their mind or their body or anything else. They can just live in peace because they are right with the God who made them. The God who knows their innermost thoughts. Let me pray. Lord, I I really doubt